first off, welcome. Thank you all for being here. Um, we, um, so today we're, we're welcoming Tony Zanders. Um, Tony has, so I met Tony uh, in New Orleans at an event and I found out that he was actually here in Baton Rouge. And I remember that moment, I'm like, you're coming to Startup Grind. One way or another, I'm gonna get you there. And that, I think that was early December. So we exchanged a few messages. I'm very excited to, to, to bring him out today. Um, Tony has been a library technology executive serving as a founder and CEO of SkillType. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the paper because he has some history. Good history, but he has some. Um, so prior to SkillType, uh, Tony served as inaugural entrepreneur in residence for Boston University Libraries, advised the senior leadership on talent, future of work. For nine years, he held roles um, where he consulted library leaders across six continents. Um, and in recently, he has just moved his offices here to Baton Rouge for skill type. He has recently raised $1.1 million, and we are really excited to have him. So Tony, uh, welcome to the stage. Appreciate it. Yeah. It's great to be here. All right. So um, to start, to, to get things kicked off, um, we, we have an understanding that you've been in the library industry, that right now you run skill type. Let's go before that a little bit. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how we got to this point um, where you're now running skill type and living in Baton Rouge? Sure, uh, where do I start? Um, I guess 2007, uh, I graduated from college. I studied philosophy and English, didn't know anything about tech computer science, engineering, anything, but I knew how to ask questions. And um, my first job out of college was in Menlo Park, California as a consultant. And uh, my job was to learn about people who were trying to enter into the tech industry and help place them into tech companies. And so um, that was sort of my professional introduction to the world. And for those of you who haven't been to Silicon Valley, um, it's a place that spans over 20 cities. Um, and every coffee shop you go to, every restaurant you go to, you're gonna see someone that looks like they're trying to solve a big problem and they don't care about anything else happening around them. Um, at some point, it's gonna strike your curiosity on like what they're working on, what are they building, why do they have a laptop out in a restaurant? Uh, and eventually, you'll start to figure out like, okay, these are the folks that are building the apps we use every day, they're trying to solve problems. And so eventually it doesn't really matter what your path was to get there, but you'll um, start to catch the bug. And I started to get interested in what ideas I had. Um, the nine to five I was working was pretty slow. And so inevitably after hours and on weekends, you're trying to figure out what are some ways you can get in on all this fun that's happening. And um, I started to um, consult. This was at the time when social media was starting to come about and um, LinkedIn's right in Mountain View, like five minutes away from where I'm working. Uh, Facebook doesn't have a headquarters yet. They're still like just popping down in different um, office buildings until they outgrow it, then they go to the next one, then they outgrow that one, then outgrow that one. Um, and so uh, I winded up putting together a pitch deck for my first company. I didn't know what I was doing. 
The pitch deck was 72 slides long. Uh, for those who, who are involved in investing, you, you could kind of appreciate the humor in that. But you got to start somewhere. And fortunately, I had a mentor that was willing to work with me and had grace and didn't make fun of me or shoo me away. He actually read the whole thing and kind of coached me on how we can make it shorter. Um, and that was kind of my introduction um, to the Valley and to tech. And um, that particular idea I had didn't wind up going anywhere, but it made me realize that anyone who wants to solve a problem, um, you can try. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of, of the journey. Um, once you yeah. get the bug, it's you're gonna. It's only a matter of time before you try again. So I love that. Um, yeah. So it's funny you say 72 pages, uh, <laughs> 72 slides. I I just. I just um, I just really put out a template for the six slide pitch deck. Wow. Um, I wish I had it. I, well, <laughs> I, now I know to have it, right? Because I was in the same boat. We, we made pitch decks be, you know, be you know, 10, 20, 30, you know, not yeah. knowing. Um, but in, the, in that time, so, you know, you're talking about a time in Silicon Valley where things had really not grown to the extent that we've seen today, right? I mean, you're, yeah, you're talking no, about Facebook didn't have an office. and. No. I, I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, like that, how when you're seeing other people, like that kind of culture that was there, how they went from, you know, we don't have to get into specifics, but how they went from where they were, where you were there, yep. to where they are today. Um, and I think we, we, we talked about this just a little bit um, in a very short period of time. Yeah. But it was people like you, you were working nine to five, and now all of a sudden you want to approach, you know. And it, it was creating an environment where everyone, no matter their, background or skin color could feel like they had what it took to participate. And um, I never felt ostracized or, or, or like I wasn't good enough. I could ask questions and get the answers I wanted. I could participate in conversations. And um, I remember going to Stanford uninvited, just showing up to random events. Every night of the week, there's some type of event happening. It doesn't matter. It could be in Redwood City, Sunnyvale, Burlingame, towns we've never heard of. There's something happening. And um, the reason it got that way is because uh, the currency of the Valley is ideas. And so um, very, very few people that I ever met there are born and raised there. They come from around the world because they want to participate in that. And so, um, little backstory, my, uh, my dad's sister, my aunt, bought a home there in the early 80s. And when you listen to her tell stories um, about what San Jose was like at that time, there was no tech companies around. There were orange groves, garlic farms. Um, most of the towns were sleepy little, you know, cottage towns. And um, that was what it was like. Yeah. Um, the 101 wasn't as busy. The 280 wasn't as busy. You had Stanford. You had these places. But it was a, a, a pretty sleepy place. Yeah. And it reminded me of the commute we take when we drive from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. Um, I'm, I'm from New Orleans. And so um, I've made this commute a, a bunch of times. And um, it's not that different. Uh, and that was in the 80s. And so if you fast forward 30 years to 2010, where like the reality TV show we see about the Valley is, um, that's, a, that's a single generation 
yeah. um, that it made this transformation. And um, that's how I feel about Southeast Louisiana. I think we have all the raw ingredients to make a transformation. I think the key is gonna be for people who are in positions of influence to be open to our currency transitioning from things like personal background and demographics into a currency that's based on ideas. Yeah. So, um, can, can I, so can I ask you what you think helps us make that transition? Because, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll put this on the backdrop of, um, we were just at a uh, ecosystem building meeting um, just last week where every, you know, every, you know, that's, that's actually where I met, met Mary and we brought in every organization in town and um, we were lucky enough from Starbucks to be there and have a conversation around what is our perception of the problem and how can we all play different roles? So it, it feels like we're, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to mold it by force do you, did you see that happening in Silicon Valley or did, and, and do you see any pathways for us to, we're not trying to be the next Silicon Valley. I mean, let me, let me, let me say and that. I don't think we should be. I don't think we should be either. No. But yep. um, are, are there, are there ways that we can become a place where um, ideas, you know, it's, it's idea generated, it's idea motivated? Yes. And I think it's already happening. Um, yeah. Again, being from New Orleans and deciding to, um, base skill type there for the past three years, um, but physically living and um, paying taxes and raising my children here in Baton Rouge, yep. uh, and, and always trying to tease out the um, the boundaries of of I guess I would describe it as uh, there's there's a lot of colloquialism and and parochialism uh, in our region. Uh, right now and, when you want to get to... Wait, wait. If you're yeah. wondering what that means, I also asked him that question. Would you mind sharing for anyone that doesn't know what, what those two things mean? At colloquialisms, as in like the local lingo we use, you can tell whether someone's from New Orleans or Baton Rouge. Um, I'm not from Baton Rouge. I pronounce it Baton Rouge. People from here pronounce it Baton Rouge. <laughs> so that's like one example. You, you could tell the difference based on the accent. Uh, parochialism, um, I grew up Catholic. Uh, I'm no longer Catholic, but it's a religious term that could also be applied outside of religion. Uh, and so there's these different sort of groupings we form ourselves in. And Baton Rouge and New Orleans are very much subject to that gravity of, of, of parochialism. Right now, if you're in New Orleans, the currency is if you want to get to know in qu the quickest way to figure out if someone's from there is to ask them what high school they went to. It's like the most yeah. efficient path. Uh, and if someone struggles to answer that, it's, it's like instant. Baton Rouge has its own version of that, right? Like we can vet out if someone went to Catholic high or they went to U high, and if not, you're put into a separate category, right? And these types of um, like ways we build relationships aren't really present in Silicon Valley yeah. um, because that's not a multi-generational community. Yeah. Most people there came there within the past generation. And so um, they're, they're asking, what are you doing? What are you building? What, do, what, do what you are do you doing is the here? first question, yeah. right? And so your identity is linked to your vocation and your work. Um, and I think just acknowledging that instead of like saying whether it's wrong or right, just acknowledging it, I think is, a, is some, some progress. Yeah. Um, and so I push back on it every time I, I'm sort of dragged into that, that, those semantics. Um, and I try to shift the conversation into um, 
what are you doing or what are you interested in doing? And in five minutes in an elevator pitch, let me try to figure out if I can be helpful along your path to doing whatever it is you're trying to do, whether that's through making a connection or through sharing some ideas or experiences, um, handing out a business card, yeah. which is a pre-COVID practice, but yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but actually one I realized I probably need business cards because that, at that event, I, everyone asked me for one. I'm like, um, I don't believe in them. Like, how, how do I answer this question? I was lazy because I can't say that. I didn't bring them. No, I don't do them anymore. Um, yeah. So let's, so you're back. Let's, let's talk about now where, you know, because actually we can come back and kind of wrap up around Baton Rouge. You're, you're back in Baton Rouge. Um, you're in the library business. Yeah. That doesn't seem very startup-y. That doesn't seem very flashy. Not, um, not yet. Can you, yeah. <laughs> what, um, bri- briefly talk about maybe how you got into libraries, but I would really love to know uh, about the origins of skill type because yeah. a lot of what we're going to talk about the rest of the night is yeah. about how you're building your expertise around this domain, yeah. but tackling something bigger than I think many of us uh, see. Yeah, my um, third job in my career I got recruited to um, leave San Francisco. The president of this tech company I was working at left and went to a company based in Boston. And this company was a library technology company. Um, I wasn't aware that there was an industry known as library technology. I knew about libraries as a kid. We had like the Pizza Hut Book It Club, if you read a book. Right? Shout out to Book It. Anybody like, yeah, raise your shout out to Book It, right? You can read a book and write a book report and you get a free personal pan pizza. And as an eight-year-old, that's that's like, it doesn't get more awesome than that. And so, but that's all I really knew about libraries until I got to college, went to the library to study, write papers and things. Um, But I never really knew there was an industry. I just thought it was this magical place that just automatically worked. (laughs) Not realizing that there were people and large budgets and, so I get recruited to work for this company. Um, they fly uh, me and my wife out to Boston. We had never been. They timed the visit pretty perfectly. It was like Columbus Day, October. All the foliage is changing. And we're like, yeah, just sign us up. <laughs> Nothing else matters. This is a beautiful place. But we go and um, I start working for a company called Ex Libris. And um, this, this company founded the industry that we now know today as library technology. And so, um, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Israel, the software developers who worked there in the 80s created this technology called the Integrated Library System. And um, it basically allowed the library world to transition off of the Dewey Decimal System card catalog and move to an online format for how we organize books. And that was in the early 80s. And um, they decided to commercialize that product and it started this whole new industry that we know as, as library technology. And um, that industry now has become a $30 billion industry across the world. Um, some people struggle to figure out how there's that much money involved in libraries, but if you just take a step back and consider how now there's libraries in every neighborhood, even our home library here has 16 branches across the East Baton Rouge Parish. Um, we have 16 branches here? We do. <laughs> wow. We do. Um, Sorry, Mary. Yeah. Two are offsite. And don't, so, don't sell yourself short. That's 14 is <laughs> still a lot. Yeah, so 
uh, but then also consider every college and university has a library, right? Every, every, every state has a library that manages the archives and history of that state, right? Um, and then imagine that across about 200 countries, right? And that's a lot of people and processes and workflows that have to manage information. And um, it's grown to become a, a, a pretty large industry that's pretty stable as well. Yeah. Um, the Department of Labor estimates that information professionals as a career and vocation will grow by 5% in the next 10 years. And so we need actually more people to help us manage the, the amount of information that we have as we try to find out, you know, if I want to do anything really, if yeah. I want to figure out how do I pay my taxes, right? There's librarians to help us with that process. If I want to do a home reno project, you can go to your library and they'll help you figure out where to start. Um, and so it's, these organizations um, are super special, they're everywhere. It's one of the last spaces in society that's free, where you can go and sort of get what you need with no expectation of, of paying or, or um, yeah. you can just show up and, 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 and have your information needs met. And so um, that's uh, something that I wasn't really aware of before that first job. <laughs> And it turns out that we're at a point in the history of that profession that I'll describe as sort of this digital shift where the skills that those people need to do their work are drastically changing right before our eyes. And so when people go to the library to get their needs met, it's no longer asking to be pointed in the right direction of a book that's on a shelf. It's now having to navigate hundreds of different databases and online websites to find the right link to a full text article that could be on any topic under the sun, right? So we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, and few people know that a lot of the progress we're making on getting to the solution to how to solve COVID is being managed by a library. And so Johns Hopkins University Libraries partners with the epidemiology program and others to create this real-time data dashboard around COVID-19. That's work that's being done in the library, right? And so libraries are these fascinating um, um, places and spaces in society that can respond to whatever our needs are in, in, yeah. in real time. So um, a couple things on this. So yep. one, again, libraries. You, you. Um, you know, we were, we were talking, one, one of the things that, that struck me was, you said there's, there isn't a library where, that I can get on a call with and I, I, don't know, I, I don't know the answer to the question. Like you, you, you talked very strongly about your domain expertise around libraries. Yep. Now, the job in Boston, that was your first job around libraries? Yep. Okay, following that, I'm curious, was it intentional? Did it, did it become like, you know, was it just the interest of, of Hey, you know what? Libraries, like they're solving, they're, they're doing something great. I, I enjoy being in it, you know, and because, you know, part of the conversation tonight is about it, domain expertise. Yep. And so we, we went back and forth on it and, and where I honestly have opposing views. I, I, I think anyone can do anything, right? I, I, I believe technology removes the barrier of having to be a domain expert. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I, but I believe you disagree, but I think you have great reasons for that. Yeah. Um, okay, can you, can you explain a little bit about how you stayed in the libraries and, and then the, the actual point where we started Scale Type? Yeah, I had already bitten the startup bug by the time I found out about the magical world of libraries. And so I'm always trying to figure out how to improve things, how to make things better. And I had spent years at that point now uh, in this industry building relationships, learning about this, um, this, this, this fascinating profession in this industry. And so it was natural for me to try to figure out how can I use that to um, also sort of tease out my entrepreneurial hunger uh, to, to build something. Um, and so you go to a lot of uh, startup accelerator events or, or incubator events and um, people are trying to figure out how do, uh, where do I start? Um, how do I figure out what I wanna build? Um, for me, it was natural to stick with what I knew really, really well, which was library technology. Um, and because of that, I had a competitive advantage um, knowing, having studied the space, I could rattle off the entire competitive landscape. I could tell you to a T how libraries spend their money down to the percentage. Um, and so it was natural for me to use that to figure out a way to build something new and to solve a problem, as opposed to um, going with whatever the, the, the Joneses are or the, the, or the more popular wave. Like right now, everyone's into Web 3.0 and NFTs. And I'm like, yeah, that's exciting and new, but um, I don't know it all that well just yet. This is a space where I have expertise. And so let me figure out how can I build something using this expertise that I have. Um, and so I think that's... Part of the story is asking yourself, what are you passionate about? What do you know really well? What sets you apart and what makes you uniquely qualified to build a company? Um, as we start to work with investors, we learn that that's important to them as well. For them to ask the question, why are you the right person to build this company? And um, you have to have a good answer for that. You have to have the evidence or the receipts for what makes you a person that we should bet on? Because it's, it's a bet yeah. investors are making. And so it's a far easier conversation when you can clearly demonstrate your domain expertise in a certain area. Um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this 10,000 hour rule in order to become an expert at anything. I haven't calculated the number of hours I've spent studying libraries, but after 12 years working with them in 30 countries, I'm, I think I'm close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and let me, so the opportunity that you saw in skill type was, because um, I, I, wanna, I wanna jump into that now. Yeah. Okay, so um, the one way you described skill type to me was you know, helping build a bridge for where libraries and library staff and, and those people operating libraries today are. Yeah. and where they're going to be. So you've already recognized that, that we're making huge leaps. Meanwhile, some of us haven't even, you know, like we, you were talking about Web3. Some of us haven't even like figured out what Web2 is yet, right? right? And as soon as like yep. Web3 came out, everyone's like, wait, what's the difference? Like, yeah. it, it, what's, what's the two? I, mean, I didn't know there was a two. I <laughs> yeah. thought it was just the web. Yeah. Um, yep. 
when you started attacking that problem, um, how targeted was it? Where is it today? And where are you trying to take it? Yeah, so this started at a lunch I had with um, a librarian named Dr. Silverna Fort. Uh, she's the, she was, she's retired now, but she was the library director at the University of Memphis. And we were having a lunch and I asked, it, was a, it wasn't a work conversation, I just asked, what keeps you up at night professionally? And she said, my people, um, my staff, um, being able to train, make sure they have the right skills they need, making sure that I can pay them enough, um, making sure as people retire, we have the support to serve our communities, yeah. um, making sure we can recruit a diverse staff because our staff needs to reflect the patrons we serve. And she went on and on and on with all these people-related issues. I had come out of... Uh, company and I was where we were not focused on that problem. We were selling research databases and software tools to help libraries manage collections. And so she exposed me to this whole other area that was a huge problem. And it turned out that that was actually the largest expenditure in the library budget. So if you look at where libraries spend their money, the biggest place they spend money is on their most important asset, which is people, right? But this was just so happened to be the biggest problem they had. And so I got super intrigued by that. It was a full circle moment because my first job out of college was doing human resources consulting. And so I was having this full circle moment and I went off on a nine month research process just to sort of confirm some assumptions I had and ask some questions. And um, if I can interject, you were still at your job at this point, right? Yep. Okay. And I didn't really have an idea for what a company would be or if there could be a company. I was just super curious about this problem she was facing that I later confirmed was something that every library around the world, over two million of them were facing. And um, so then that got me inspired to figure out, okay, I have this question that I now have an answer to, which is, um, how could we use technology to help libraries manage people better? And so it went from a, identifying a problem to translating that into a question that you can try to answer. And um, I winded up building this community of people to help me solve this problem. And so um, I spoke with probably over 300 libraries and nine of them agreed to help me do some research and development. And so um, they gave us $1,000 a month to prototype different software um, tools to help wrap our arms around this problem of people management in libraries. That was uh, in 2018. Yeah. And since then, that community has grown from nine libraries to about 50, um, one country to four countries. Um, and now it's this global community that's trying to figure out a more specific question. How do we prepare this profession for 2030 and beyond? And so um, we've since commercialized this prototype uh, that we had and it's become a, a, a product, a software as a service product that we can sell to libraries. And the platform is fairly simple. It helps libraries understand what are the skills 
I have inside of my organization. Um, today, we actually just announced that the East Baton Rouge Parish Libraries is the newest skill type customer. And they have over 400 employees across these 14 to 16 branches. The problem we're helping them solve is to identify where, what are the skills we have across all these people. And as a result of that, we can figure out where are our skill gaps, right? And so in large organizations, it's one thing to launch these job searches. It's another thing to pay for all these trainings. None of it really matters if you don't know where your skill gaps are. You could be wasting all your money unless yeah. you can verify yeah. that. And so it's a data platform that yeah. helps kind of surface these insights and create personalized training plans for every employee to help close those gaps. So the idea is that every library around the world needs to close these skill gaps um, if they want to continue serving their communities and meeting their needs. Yeah. yeah. And, and so actually before we get into the next part, I, I think this is an interesting topic about um, you've, you've really identified your niche. I mean, look, look he like, he's, he's like, yeah, I know, I know yeah. I have. Um, yeah. I'm curious, you know, if, you know, show of hands, how many people in here know their niche? Like, no, this is, this is who I am. Like, if you have to say, you know, you know, hey, he's like, hey, this is who I am. And this is what I do. And, and this is what I focus on. Um, I, 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 I told Tony this when we were talking, I, um, I made the very um, cringeworthy move on, on Twitter to, to put in my Twitter bio that I'm the the hashtag, uh, no, not hashtag, the, in quotes, the networks guy. Because what, I, what, I'm, what I'm realizing is like, I, to, to, to your point, and this is what really attracted me to this conversation, is that you start looking at the things that you've done, the things that you're pursuing, and it's like every single one of them. And for me, that was, you know, because when you said you had like so many years in, in libraries, how many years now? 13. 13. Yep. I was like, you know, I started looking back at, at what I things I've done, I was like, Everything I've done is about connection networks. Like, even the, the, where I'm, I'm interviewing for today is connection networks. The, every aspect of, of, of it. And, and, and I only started becoming, like, empowered by that in the last three months. And it was like a perfect intersection to meeting you because Tony walks up to me. He's like, I'm Tony. I do libraries. And I'm like, cool, Tony. Like, what else, Tony? Like, he's like... I crushed it at libraries. I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> like, um, and so, so for, you know, is there a way that, you know, some of like us, anyone that someone that maybe doesn't know, like, hey, hey this is my niche. This is the thing that I'm going after um, for, for them to discover it. Like, you know, was there, was there, did you ask yourself, you know, just like, Tony, do you really want to do libraries? Like, like, do you, did that ever cross your mind or were you just, were you just rolling with it? No, uh, I think it, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm 36. And my 20s were spent um, becoming really, really, really good at something. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important not to try to get this expertise or try to find a niche overnight. It takes time. And um, it, it may take a decade. Uh, it might take 10,000 hours. Yeah. And, um, but I do believe that there is something for everyone to spend 10,000 hours on and you're gonna be so passionate about it that it doesn't even feel like it. Um, Cause it doesn't feel like it for me. And 
I think it's just combating that urge to want to arrive at a destination overnight and just understanding that it takes time. Um, I had to learn this over the course of that period. Uh, it was difficult starting my career in the Valley and seeing TechCrunch articles about these Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Zuckerberg-esque prototypes of people who 21 found their thing at 21 and could raise you know, a billion dollars to go after it from an idea they had at 21. And if you're surrounding yourself with those people pursuing that, you'll start to think that that is the way and that's the only way. When in reality, the data shows that that's the exception to the rule. Harvard Business Review puts out a number of articles that are talking about the average age of finding your niche. And one particular one that talks about the average age of a CEO that takes an IPO being in their mid 40s, which is a counter narrative to what you see with the headlines, uh, especially if TechCrunch is dominating all of these publications and it's yeah. syndicated across every startup email lit newsletter and everything. And so that gave me some confidence that, yeah, it's okay that I didn't figure it out right out of college. <laughs> Before college, they even dropped out of college. And that is glorified, like drop out of college if you have that idea. And the number of people who've done that and successful are extremely rare. You could probably count them on one hand, like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Evan Spiegel with Snapchat and maybe like, yeah. Can we name any others? No. It's like three of hundreds of successful tech companies. Um, and, but it, it took me to realize that, to not put that pressure on myself that it's okay if I'm learning during my 20s and I'm mastering my craft, I'm, I'm studying, I'm apprenticing, I'm shadowing someone who has real expertise. It's okay if I don't know anything. It's okay to ask questions. I don't have to front like I know everything. And it's okay if I have this imposter syndrome. Yeah. And it's okay to sit in that space for 10 years. As long as I'm doing my job, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard, I'm studying, because there's this other decade, you're gonna enter in your 30s, where yeah. you'll be able to use that expertise and things are gonna start to come naturally to you. Like, I don't have to study libraries anymore. I, I, I really understand them. I can talk to yeah. anyone, any position, and, but I wasn't in that space 10 years ago. And so there's this, it's this unceremonious transition to that new stage. No one's gonna you know, celebrate with you that you've made it, <laughs> but you will make it. Yeah. And once you get to that point, you'll feel like you're in a position to start solving problems. Um, but it's not overnight. Have you, you think you've made it? I think I've made it. Okay, well we're here to celebrate with you. So awesome. cheer, cheers to you, okay? Awesome. Yes. <laughs> I think I've made it. Um, you know, you say, you say something interesting about, you know, being okay with, with hey, this is the process I'm learning. Mm -hmm. um, if any of you were here um, in la just last year, you know, I think in March and April, um, I, I was up here and we had the conversations I was having with these the, the founders that, were so kind to come up was about our fundraising process. Um, 
and, and, and one thing that, you know, was very hard to bring out was that imposter syndrome. We failed. You know, we were, we hit like, you know, 35% of our, you know, what we were trying to hit. And we're like, well, you know what? Like, it's not going to work with 35%. Like, so, um, and then only recently have, have I gained that kind of mindset where it's like, it's okay to be on your way. We are all on our way. You know, don't, if you look at Twitter too much, you see all these people that have been to YC, done this, raised 10 million. You, you think you need to do it by 25. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of people, how many people are, if you want to say, under 30 in this room? A, a lot, you know, over half it looks like, right? Um, just, just last week when we were at that, at that meeting, uh, Mary, Chris, you guys were there. Um, there was a moment where it, we were talking about age and Kenny brought up his age, Kenny Wynn. Um, and all of a sudden he's like, you know, he's telling, I think he's like 30, I don't know, 32. He's, and, I, and, I said, and I looked around and I was like, I'm the youngest in the room by four years. But even then, so I just, I just wanted to take that moment to say this because like, I think us as founders, we're in a small city. Sometimes it feels like we're a big fish in a small pond, but it does not take away the fact that we may think to ourselves, we're not doing enough. We're not, we're not successful enough. We're not far enough. Um, and the reason I'm saying that, because this is the first time I'm actually sitting up here since last March. Mm. Um, and I'm saying that to be very transparent and open because last March I was sitting up here hiding all the emotions. Everything was underneath. And I was, you know, and, and Scott, my co-founder right there, who, God, you know, bless you for going through it with me. But we have everything underneath and we pushed so hard because I didn't have the mindset this could take a long, long time. We said, we got to get it done now. And we got to do it big now. And that hurt us. Yeah. Um, but you have reached there. And that's why you're up here. And I'm very excited to be talking to you. So the next step in this, and, and you know, I wanted to share that because I, I, I think it's important. Mm -hmm. The next step in this is that, um, congratulations on your, on your million dollar raise in November. Um, can you share a little bit more about the round? And then I do have some questions about actionable things that you, you know, steps that you took to raise that money that some of us may, may learn from. Yeah, it, um, so uh, we started a fundraise last spring after bootstrapping skill type for about two and a half years. Um, it wasn't my goal to raise money. Um, I know other founders, I've coached them through uh, working for different accelerators to help these founders on enterprise sales strategy. And so I've probably coached 60 different founders by this point, one-on-one -on -one coaching. And when I got to last year and starting skill type, um, I didn't want to raise money. Um, because when you raise money from outside investors, you are giving away the ownership in your business and you're all of a sudden back in the situation you were in before you started the company, which is you're an employee of this new company. Um, your title is just the CEO, but you're working for these investors to provide a return on their investment. I didn't want to do that. And... Um, 
it turned out that I wound up doing it and I have a more nuanced view and approach now um, that I would recommend people consider, which is my focus was to build a business, um, not a product, but a business and to have the business be making money. And I told myself that if I couldn't make money from whatever it was that I was offering, um, it's not a business and investors won't invest in it. And so if I just focus on growing a business, um, creating something that's of value and making money for it, it's gonna be a win-win. Either I'm gonna make enough to grow and keep running the business on my own, or I'll be making money. And if I wanna raise investment, I can, and I'm gonna be a better investment candidate because I'm making money. And so, by sort of psyching myself out and focusing on not talking to investors for, for three years and just really wrestling in this space of how do I create value and, and, and build a business, it winds up paying off either way down the line. And so um, fast forward to 2021, I was wrapping up my ERR role at Boston University. That was a two year residency. And I knew that I would have to find a way to pay my salary and my healthcare after that residency ended. That residency had an end date and um, I got a phone call from one of the, uh, the, the CEO, her name's uh, Sabrina Short. She's based in New Orleans. She runs a community called Nola Bay Black. And she just calls me one day on schedule and asks if we're raising money. And I had to, get myself out of my normal sort of like knee-jerk answer of like, no, we're not raising money. Of, you know, this is an interesting time. Uh, yes, I'm open, why do you ask? And it turned out that she wanted up having a conversation with an investor who was looking for companies like mine. And so that was on a Monday. She does the email intro on a Tuesday. I send a deck on a Tuesday to skill type. We have a Zoom call on a Wednesday and I have a term sheet on a Thursday. Wow. And that wouldn't have happened if my intention when I had this idea was to just raise money. Um, and so I think one of the lessons I learned and sort of from that was um, because of TechCrunch and other like press outlets that glamorize fundraising as an end unto itself, it's conditioned this generation of entrepreneurs that we're in that fundraising is the goal. And that once you fundraise, that's the goal. Whereas my perspective is if you raise money, you're just putting gas in your tank, but you still need to have a destination in mind of where you're driving to. And so it's good to have gas in the tank, but the question is where are you headed? And, um, and so it wind up, working out perfectly, yeah. uh, but we weren't out pitching. I don't have a story like, oh, I pitched 300 investors and, and we wound up getting 10. Like, no, it was, it sort of fell in our lap yeah. because my focus was, um, I wanted to talk with as many libraries as I could. Um, I wanted to understand their problems as deeply as I could. And I wanted to surround myself with a team of people who were as passionate about them as I was. And we did that for three years. Wow. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think, 
how, you know, when, when you talk to your investors, yeah. um, how much do you think that approach influenced you getting the money? Obviously, you know, and I, I think investors are out there to invest. Like that's what they do. They have capital. They need to distribute that capital in some way. Like they're, they're, they're not sitting there in their high tower holding like, like they need to go out and do it. Yeah. And so this investor comes out with the intention, you know, behind what he does and to invest. How much do you think that history that you had in libraries, the way you had set up skill type, uh, and your experience influenced the decision making? And, and, and I'm curious about, wait, wait, before we get into that, how many pages was the deck? Nine. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's better. Yeah. It was better than my first what, one. What, yeah. <laughs> wow. What, what growth. Um, yep. Nah, yeah. Um, how much of that was about you and your background? How much of it was about uh, the company? The deck itself? Yeah. Only about two bullets on me. Okay. So, um, and then, so that, you know, yeah. there was the introduction. Do you, well, yeah. I guess the premise of the question is how much do you, it did, how much did they invest do you believe in you versus the company? You know? Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Got it. So, yeah, the deck itself only had two bullets about Tony. Okay. Um, it was about this really big problem about that we wanted to solve and our unique approach to doing that. Um, and we have a t we built a team. And so that was the deck. I think the investment decision that they've kind of told me afterwards, um, it had a lot to do with me. I mean, I've, I've had a, a recent conversation with one of our investors that said, you know, we decided to invest in you. Um, skill type may not work. It, it, it might not be what you expect it to be, but we trust that you will figure it out because of the work you've put in. And, and so, you know, seed stage companies and companies that are um, perhaps pre-revenue or just early revenue, investors are making a decision in, in, in the person and the people that are, are, are pitching. Um, the most famous example of this is uh, Instagram and Kevin Systrom and um, his founders, uh, they were working on this uh, pitiful excuse of an app called Bourbon, uh, B-U-R-B-N, and it was like a geolocation app that was like competing with Foursquare. And it was, it was hot trash. Um, <laughs> it didn't, it, 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 it was not, it was a super crowded space. Yeah. But that wasn't a reflection on Kevin Sistrom and his founders. That was just, that was their first idea that brought that team together. And they realized that the most popular feature of that app was the photo uploading piece. <laughs> and they were smart enough to understand that that's worth digging into. Um, and that's where Instagram came from. But that first idea they had wasn't anything impressive. Uh, yeah. it, it was, um, and so that's, that's a, a, now they wanted up selling the Facebook for, um, I think it was a billion dollars and they only had 11 people working for them. Yeah. 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 And, and, and even that was a big call. Like I, I was, I was listening to the backstory on that just recently, how I, I didn't realize they bought Instagram in the same year that they were IPOing. And I didn't realize that they spent over a quarter of their on-hand cash on Instagram before they IPO. Like they put their IPO in risk doing that, or, or Mark did, right? And there was this connection he had to the founders that uh, I guess, you know, some of those stories are just coming out, but 
I found that so fascinating that that was he was willing to take that big of a risk on an unproven, un you know, no revenue generating company. Um, but clearly he was onto something, and clearly he won. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the other side of the coin on the domain expertise conversation is if you build up enough legitimate expertise in a domain, that is the criteria for an investor investing in you and your idea is that you've actually done it and you can demonstrate it. And so can you educate an investor about a new market or industry they had, they had no idea about? If they go off and send their analysts to do research on that space, is it gonna confirm what you said? Right, and if you prove to them that you are the 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 woman to do that or the man to do that, uh, they'll write you a check because you're you're the one uh, who's who's going to be the closest to solving that problem. Um, and if it's in a space that's big enough and popular, like something like Web three, investors just simply want to get into the game. Uh, they. they and so yeah. it's, it's, um, it's having that domain expertise um, and being able to communicate it, improve right. it, uh, I think is the majority of the decision-making criteria at, for an for a early stage company. Later stages, it really just comes down to a financial model you can present and back up. But early days, they're investing in, in, in us. Um, I, so one more question. So on, mm -hmm. in terms of... Um, when we talk, you know, we talked about skill type almost being an unbundling of current tools and products that are out there, yep. unbundling them and putting and targeting them towards towards libraries because you are the person to do that, right? Um, if if you know, for for anyone out here considering a, a new idea or considering um, you know a pro, you know, targeting their niche, their niche focus, subject matter, you know, whatever that may be. Um, can you talk a little bit about how they may look at unbundling, you know, current products, current tools today um, and offering that? And obviously it's not the exact same, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Salesforce is a ton of things, but there's also new CRM tools coming out daily targeting new industries. And I think this is one thing that's interesting is that you found a way to do that and you have big plans coming up, but can you maybe advise us on a little bit on like, you know, how someone would go about finding, um, yeah, fi finding a solution within their niche? Yeah, I can speak on behalf of the software industry. It's, sure. it's all I've ever worked in. Okay. Um, I don't know much about services or, or um, other things, but in software, if you look at every software company um, that's, you know the name of, uh, specifically, uh, business to business software companies as opposed to like business to consumer companies, they fall into one or two categories. Um, those B2B companies are either, they made their success from taking a bunch of dip, disparate workflows and bundling them together. So like a bunch of annoying tasks that people have and putting them all into one app or experience or the opposite. They unbundled this user experience that's gotten too bloated and too large and too unwieldy. And so those are the two options you have to build a successful business to business company. You're either unbundling something or you're bundling something together. The whole point is to make it easier for someone to complete a task or a company or an organization to complete a task. And 
I read about this when I was just working a, a, a nine to five in the valley of Craigslist. And so the most famous example from 2005 to 2010 of a company that got unbundled is Craigslist. And so how many of you are familiar with Craigslist? I don't know if people still use it, but Craigslist was a classifieds ads website. Craig Newmark started this website. It doesn't have any styling or CSS. It's just plain text links. And it begun to do a little bit of everything. You could buy a dog on Craigslist, you could rent an apartment, you could buy a car, you can sell whatever. And it started to get so much traffic and so, much, um, so many transactions that um, you could even post jobs on Craigslist. You can literally do everything. But it got so big that companies, other founders started to realize, well, I could probably create a better experience for this little segment of people or, yeah. or buyers if I just took that one feature off and understood more about that community and built something just for them, right? And so there's over a dozen billion dollar companies that were created from unbundling Craigslist. Um, Airbnb is one of them, right? It took the whole short-term rental and leasing piece of Craigslist and they said, we're gonna do a much better job at them. We're gonna get professional photographers to, to photograph the apartment. We're gonna tell you information about where you're gonna go eat once you're checked into the apartment. And that winded up becoming a far better experience than doing that on Craigslist. Uh, Uber um, winded up doing the same thing from um, finding drivers on, on Craigslist to come pick you up from the airport. And so um, that's an example of something that got unbundled yeah. And created a, a bunch of value. Um, and I think that plays to, to what you're, you know, like, yep. like libraries probably found software that mm -hmm. and probably could find software, but like it's not made for, it's made for businesses, but it's not made for them. Right. Like, you know, and, and you know, this Uber, Airbnb, I mean, there's those, those, you know, apps you can find photographers, apps you can find dog walkers. I mean, yep. and all of these, right, there's probably a cupcake app, I'm yep. sure. You know, yep. they're, there's all these little ways that, that I think a lot of us can go and like, and yeah. I wonder if before there was the crawfish app, I wonder if there was crawfish on Craigslist. I wonder if there was a category. There might've been. I'm sure you could meet <laughs> someone in a Walmart parking lot <laughs> to buy a pound of crawfish on Craigslist. Like that, Maybe. I mean, that's what it was. Yeah. And so for us, when we were starting skill type, that unbundling had already happened, but I, I studied it and knew I developed a mental model for this idea of unbundling versus bundling. LinkedIn was the version of this when I was founding SkillType, where it had become all things to all people related to talent management and um, so much so that it became a master of none. Um, when I learned about this problem libraries were facing and that they were using LinkedIn to post jobs. They were also using LinkedIn learning to train employees. None of those were amazing experiences, but that was what was available at the time. And so I was a part of the, and I am a part of the class of founders that is unbundling LinkedIn for a very specific niche and the niche is large enough to build a, a viable, sustainable business and create jobs. Um, and, uh, but that mental model I developed came from understanding 
the history behind Craigslist. And, um, and yeah. so, yeah, we, we the, the easiest analogy for, for skill type is like LinkedIn, but specifically for libraries. Yeah. Um, and that's a bit into the roadmap we have for the future as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and this is something that, you know, this, this conversation, we, we keep going. I think this, so we're at the, about the end here. I'm going to ask a few questions wrapping up. Um, yep. um, what's the, what's the best tool you've ever used for startups, for your startup? I mean, the, 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 the easy answer is, is Google suite. Yeah. Um, you can do everything with, uh, a $5 subscription to Google that you need to. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, okay. I know it's not a, an exciting answer, yeah, yeah. but no, it's, good. it's everything we do is, is on it. Yeah. I would have said Slack, but that's changed. Yeah. Yeah. Any no-code tools? Are you a no-code at all? Yep. Okay. Favorite um, no-code tool? So um, WordPress. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So the first, first, first version of skill type was... <laughs> a WordPress blog uh, where we allowed librarians to create a, 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 a WordPress page on the blog <laughs> where they described <laughs> the skills they had, yeah. which were WordPress tags. <laughs> and we allowed a library to search by tag to find experts in the, in the library. You really and hacked it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I built it myself. And, uh, Love that. And that allowed us to get our first customer paying $1,000 a month. Love that. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not a coder, so. Hey, yeah. I get it. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not a coder here, but, but now I'm, it's, it's changed. No code has changed everything. Yep. Um, that, that, that's a whole conversation. So, okay, going to turn here. Yep. Um, uh, beer or wine? Wine. Sushi or tacos? Do I have to choose? You do. Uh, uh, I'm gonna just. It is Taco Tuesday, but I just street gonna, street tacos gonna, from Superior. Okay. Good good work. Yeah. Um, best. Oh wait wait. What's your favorite local restaurant? Superior Grill. Okay. Staying staying truth. I see, I see it. Staying true to the. Um, last thing before we open up Q and A. Um, what is something that you would want to leave the the founders here today or the aspiring entrepreneurs? That, that have joined us, um, both here and the ones that will listen to this later? Um, to take your time. Um, there's no rush, despite what the news or the media says. Um, yeah, take your time and, and don't feel pressure to, 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 to put on a front like you, you have it all figured out. Most of us don't. And acknowledging that sooner than later will just help other people want to help you figure it out. Um, Everyone just wants to be helpful, and if we think we if we project that we have it all figured out, they'll move on to figure out who can they help next. And so, um, just asking more questions than 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 making statements, and um, and um, just just taking your time, going really deep on whatever it is you're passionate about, and um, instead of trying to be a master of of, of a, a little bit of everything. Yeah, I love that. Um, we're gonna open up for for Q and A. Yes. yes, we're gonna jump in. Right? Okay, so he's been waiting. Said, take your time. Yeah. When do I know that it's time to give up on something or pivot to something else? You know, I, I, I've dug in, like you said, I've worked really hard on an idea for a long time. 
I feel like I'm at my breaking point. You know, no money left, right? We've been bootstrapped in this thing for a long time. Uh, do we just go until we're nearly on the street? When do we give up? When you don't care about it anymore. Yeah. Uh, having no money doesn't matter. You can take out, take out credit cards. We had 50 grand in credit card debt. We raised it around and paid it all off. Don't, yeah, when you stop caring about it and it's no longer interesting to you and you're faking it, it's time to move on. But if you still care about it and it's nagging you, 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 you wake up in the morning, it's the first thing on your mind, you're, you're falling asleep on your laptop like as you're working on trying to solve something, it's not time to quit. Whoever, whatever community you're trying to serve needs you not to quit. And so money's a commodity. Money, you'll find, money will find you if you don't quit. That's the easy part. Like that's like just as many gas stations they have around the city and you can get gas in your car, you can find money. You can find money from a venture capitalist, you can get it from a bank, a credit card company. There's a friend that you haven't talked to in a while who has some discretionary income and they just really like you. There, there's all kinds of ways to find money. That's the easy part, but the passion, you can't buy that. That's like, so as long as you have a fire, you can't quit. It's not time to quit. But when the fire goes out, it's time to work on something else. Cool, thanks. Yeah. Nice. Any other questions? Right here. Um, so you were saying earlier that whenever you were approaching business, you were thinking about what it's going to be like for a library to free to operate 20 years in the future or 30 years in the future. I found myself thinking about that a lot and thinking about you know, what the trends are going to be like in the future. And you know, people make a lot of predictions they would be wrong. Yeah. You know, they make all these assumptions. Where do you kind of derive a lot of your knowledge for your predictions of what the future is going to be like in your industry? And then like, how do you kind of reconcile that with where you think the world will be? Yeah. Sort of at the same time, how it kind of plays together. Yeah, I have no idea what the future is going to be like. Um, and just acknowledging that made us focus on building tools to help our customers who are libraries keep up with the rate of change. And so we don't try to predict the future. I don't know what skills libraries are going to need in 2030. They don't know. We don't know. Things are moving so fast. But what we can look at is how do libraries, and in my case, or whatever audience you're serving, um, how do we save people time and money keeping up with the rate of change? And that's where we decided to focus. And so our software doesn't make any types of predictions or projections on what libraries should be working on. We just settled on trying to save them time and money analyzing everything they need to analyze to move quickly once they do find out. So like at some point, it's, it'll become obvious what skills they need to develop. And we just want it to be far easier and cheaper for them to do it. Because they're the expert. We're, we're not the experts on librarianship. But we want to give them software tools that um, can help them keep up with the rate of change. Um, yeah, so we looked at the ways that they were developing skills today, which in our case is physically going to conferences, um, uh, 
bringing in experts to come and do workshops for a large bunch of people. A lot of ways and methods that were designed like 100 years ago. And so for us, it was really about presenting new tools that are responding to this post-pandemic, post-COVID reality where everything's on demand and virtual. Um, and so, yeah, just, we also meet with them once a month. So we have community town halls with libraries the last weekday of every month at noon. We've been doing this for two years straight. We've never missed. And we show an idea to them and we get the feedback. And in two weeks later, we release a version of software that tries to answer it. And then they say, no, move to the left a little bit. <laughs> and so we, then the next two weeks version come out and it's a little bit different. And so we're just, we're just constantly trying to um, use agile software development and um, customer development and listening. It's a, sort of an anthropological approach to present a, a platform that's gonna save them time and save them money. Because we, we trust that they are the experts. They just need better tools to, to use their expertise. All right. Do you have a question? Yeah. Chris, you're, you're next, Chris. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, so you talked about finding your niche. Um, obviously, I'm pretty young. So how do you know that you're on the right path when you're looking at such a niche? How do you know that the path you're on and the stuff you're doing day to day lead you to find it? That's a good question. Um, there are a lot of things that are outside of our control. Um, uh, who, what is, who's gonna hire you uh, to work for them? That's largely out of your control. Um, um, but whatever company you land at, um, it's gonna be this amazing learning experience for you to learn everything you can about that company and that industry. And in my case, um, that Boston-based company, Ex Libris, that, that recruited me and introduced me to libraries, it's not that I picked libraries or I, I was passionate about it back then. Um, it was just a, a, a good job opportunity that gave me a pay raise and allowed me and my family to see a new, a new place. And, um, and so we, we took it. And um, I was, how old was I, 24? 24, 25, and you know, at that point I was just trying to pay off student loan debt and you know, um, put myself and my family on a pathway to home ownership. We we're still renting, and so that, that was where my focus was at the time. Um, it turned out that I learned a ton about this space, um, and so I would just say lean into the things that are outside of your control, whether, whether you find yourself in whatever field or 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 or. or like, are you, are you still in college or are you out? Yes. You're senior. So you can't control who's going to offer you an internship, right? You, you, you can't control who that first job is going to be. But wherever it is, approach it like a student. Be hungry. Ask a ton of questions. Show up early. Leave late. And, and just try to get as much as out of every moment you can. You might be in meetings and it might, you, you might be like, why am I in this meeting? It seems super boring. No, take notes. You don't, you don't know when you're gonna use what you learned in that meeting later. I'll give you a, a concrete example. Um, I was working for a company called EBSCO and um, I, was, I just so happened to be in this meeting that was talking about like 
something at the time that seemed kind of like boring and outside of my, my area of interest in my job, which was on currency conversion, right? So I don't work in accounting. I'm not a finance guy by any means. But I was in this meeting and they were talking about the impact of selling our product in USD to another country that is, has another local currency. And I was like, why am I learning about this? <laughs> I'm not interested in this. But I paid attention. And I was, because you know, you're in a meeting, you want to be present and you want to you know, be a, a, a good employee, a good coworker, right? So it turned out like six years later, <laughs> like two months ago, we got our first customer from the UK that requested a price quote for skill type. Now the UK has the British pound, that's worth like $1.33 right now. And I all of a sudden had to remember that conversation because I was like, ah, there's something here that if I do it wrong, we're gonna lose like $15,000. <laughs> and so I had to like rack my brain and go back to that conversation that was boring at the time for me personally, but it was something that I could use later and it winded up working out really well for us. And so, you know, I couldn't have predicted that I would have been in that meeting at that company in that industry when I was in college. But um, yeah, I would just embrace and lean into the opportunities you have. Don't get bored by it. Like have like a, a wide open mind on what you can learn from it. And who knows when you're gonna use that later on. Yeah. Um, and if I could share just one thing around this. So I got I, my, I my degree in occupational safety, health and environment. Um, I was a safety professional for uh, about four years, and I had the best job ever. I got to travel three weeks out of the month. I got promoted twice in three years. I, I was great. It was one of the hardest decisions ever, ever to leave. Um, but there came a point where I looked at my boss. I, I, I was one certification away from having the best certification you could get in the safety field, and I asked myself, Do, does that excite me? Does, like, I, I wanted the money, but like, I got paid very well as a 22 year old, but and 22, 23, and I looked at my boss and I was like, having my boss's role doesn't excite me at all. Like, I, I'm, one, I'm one position under them. Like, I'm right there. Like, but I wasn't excited about continuing that. And I, you know, I, for five years I've been, that my new college was startups the last four or five years. Um, this past July, I got the email, hey, this is your last, our last attempt to help you keep your certification. If you, don't, if you don't pay your certification fee, you will lose the certification that you went to college for, mm. that you had to get recertified during work. All the hours you work, you're gonna lose all of it. And I looked at it and, I, and, and it was, took a moment for me to reflect and I was like, delete. Mm. I'm, I'm done with, I, because that, that part, like that's not the thing for me anymore. Um, so I, I just wanted to like, attest to what he says. Get super excited, go deep, do not, don't, don't be bored, excel in the career that whatever career you end up being, but like also it, it's not forever. You can live your life in three, five year sprints and you, and you can find the thing that you really love. Um, and when you know, like you'll know, yeah. And people reinvent themselves in their 40s and 50s all the time. And so I have a, one of our, Biggest users, uh, her name's Eleanor Cook. She's one of my favorite people. She just wrapped up a phased retirement at East Carolina University Libraries. She spent 30 years working in libraries. 
She's in the process of reinventing herself through skill type and taking on a whole different career and finding stuff that she's super passionate about. And that happens like all the time. And so yeah. it doesn't have to be overnight. You're gonna reinvent yourself, pick a different career, probably several times statistics say before you retire. Um, and, that's, and that's the norm. And so I would re just remove all the pressure on yourself to like make this perfect first choice. It's, it's, the first choice is gonna be the right choice for the season that you're supposed to be there. And um, that, that's been my experience. Any last question? Go ahead. Yeah, I think I see your question, and in my case, my passion's not in an industry as much as it is in people. Um, librarians and information professionals are some of the most fascinating people in th that group uh, who've chosen to commit themselves to information ethics and in that, that profession. The work they do may look very differently in 10 years. But there's still gonna be a group of people who are passionate about helping us meet our information needs. And so to take the coal miner analogy, the people who are working to provide society with the energy it needs to have conveniences and to power our infrastructure, that's the group of people I would get excited about. Because it might be coal, but 10 years it might not be coal. It might be solar, it might be but there is a group of people who is when they go to college and when they graduate from college, they're going to be passionate about providing energy to society to power infrastructure. And I would, I would marry that instead of the current instantiation of, of that. And so, because I've, I've just seen in libraries alone this evolution every 10 years, there's a new version of what librarianship looks like. And so very few librarians are checking out the index cards in the card catalog, right? That, that doesn't happen anymore. Now they're helping you troubleshoot. You searched a database and the PDF link you clicked on was broken. And so you have to go to them to figure out how do I get access to this full text but it's the same group of people who are passionate about the same things. Yeah. It just looks a lot different. Yeah. So the idea then is not to get passionate about a method, but about a goal. That's, that's much more articulate than I put it. <laughs> because yeah, the me methods change, right? Methods change. That's right. Yeah, I get that. And, and, and maybe, maybe I should have asked you why libraries. And I think that was a great question. Um, yep. So, um, you know, all of this is, you know, this, this conversation, I think, uh, thank you, thank you everyone for being here. Thank you for, for the work that you do. We are, uh, we are very excited to have you here in Baton Rouge. Um, we're excited for the next, what's next for skill type. Um, I can't thank you enough for being here. So if we could all please give a big round of applause for Tony.
We, uh, we can be here, um, uh, we'll be here until the last person leaves, so we'll be here, you know, get drinks, hang out for the next, um, you know, 30, 40.